I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Claire Chambers on her Women's Prize long-listed novel, Small Pleasures. Claire Chambers' first job after reading English literature at Hartford College, Oxford, was working with Diana Athill at André Duch. They published Claire's first novel, Uncertain Terms, in 1992, and she is the author of five other novels. And Small Pleasures, the novel we're going to talk about today, is her first work of fiction in 10 years. 10 years that paid off when Small Pleasures was long-listed for the 2021 Women's Prize. Claire, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell me how you would describe small pleasures. Well, I would I'd describe it as um, a sort of mystery, a love story, a story about ordinary miracles uh, taking place in the suburbs of London in the 1950s. It's about a journalist who's working on a local newspaper who's presented with the task of um, investigating the claim by a correspondent of the newspaper who, who says that she is a virgin mother. And in the course of investigating whether this woman is actually a a miracle or a fraud. The journalist's rather restricted humdrum life is exploded and um, turned upside down and and she kind of experiences a miracle of her own. And I said you hadn't published a novel for 10 years, not through want of trying, because you were writing for most of that, that time. So what happened? Well, I actually I'd written more than um, five novels, as it says on the on the flap of my book. That, that's a sort of under underestimate. I I had actually written eight books, and after the sixth, I started writing um, young adult fiction because I thought I hadn't really been getting anywhere, and I'd try something different. And I had you know, had young adults in the house, so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll kind of write the sort of thing that they might like reading. So I wrote a couple of those, and then I realised that I'd really run out of I'd run out of rope with that and I really hadn't, I didn't have a single other young adult idea in my head and that I'm essentially an old biddy and not not a young adult and that therefore I needed to t- turn my focus into the, the sort of interests and aspirations of older people. So I went back to writing another book and I, I cracked on with it and after about four years I reached the end and sent it to my agent and he took quite a long time to to get back to me and without too much enthusiasm and uh, eventually after I rewrote it sent it to my then previous publisher and they turned it down and I realized that I'd just invested by now five years of my life in a failing project and 
that was quite a blow. I mean, it's quite a lot of time to waste. I know a lot of writers write books that don't go anywhere, but but five years is really quite a lot of time with nothing to show for it. So that sent me into a slight depression and it took me a while to kind of climb out of that. But I realised the only way to get out of it was to write something better. I, you know, I just had to write my way out of it. So I started thinking about an idea that I'd had about 15 years before that, where I'd overheard this interview on Women's Hour about this journalist who'd had this scoop in the 1950s about this woman who claimed to be a virgin mother. And she'd been subjected to all these tests and such tests as were available in the 1950s. And they, they had been unable to really disprove her case. And it had become this sort of tabloid sensation. And I thought, I, you know, I quite like the idea of this story. And, and I, I thought I'll go back to it and I'll just have one last crack at writing a novel. And, and then if that also gets nowhere, I'll, I'll just stop and, you know, do something different and not keep flogging a dead horse. But I, I really enjoyed writing it. And it, once I'd got the plot worked out, it, it flowed much, much better. And it, I just realised that what had gone wrong with the previous failed project was that I just hadn't planned it and I hadn't, I hadn't plotted it. And so it had just rambled and spread and proliferated into this mass of subplots. So I, I kept myself pretty strict with this one and plotted it out before I started writing and made sure that I tied up all the, you know, untied all the knots and filled all the plot holes before I got going. Yeah, very long-term listeners to this show may recall that story that you've you've just relayed because um, you mentioned Arathi Prasad's book, Like a Virgin, and the afterword of, of the story. And we spoke to Arathi about that book more years ago than I would care to remember now. But yeah, but tell us, tell us a bit more about that, the story that the idea is based on, because it starts out not just as a, a local newspaper's amusing Christmas story, but as a, a real scientific inquiry into the idea of whether parthenogenesis is, is possible in humans. Yeah, it started from a journalist called Audrey Whiting in the 1950s had gone to, to a lecture in London and heard this um, geneticist called Helen Spurway talking about how parthenogenesis in, in various kind of guppies and, and various non-mammals had been possible and how, how it had also been, they'd managed to uh, manipulate rabbits into producing offspring without male genetic material. And so... This just made the, the newspaper kind of think, well, if it's even slightly possible, maybe it has happened. Maybe there has been a, a sort of one in a million spontaneous mutation of a woman um, producing a child without um, the involvement of a man. And let, let's try and find her. Let's take it seriously. So that was the start of this story. And, um, you know, it, it really made Audrey Whiting's career because circulation of the paper went from three million to six million as this story unfolded with this Mrs Jones who came forward with her daughter and had all these tests and you know they, they kept um, showing a complete sympathy between mother and daughter in terms of blood group and saliva group and serum and all, all the things that could be tested in those days of course if it had been done today the result would have been out within half an hour you, you know DNA test would have would have wrapped it up but then they didn't really have enough science to disprove it. So it just struck me as being a very, very fruitful subject for a novel about motherhood and women and just, you know, it, it was just a sort of springboard. And, um, and and it was also incredibly useful to have a, have a story that's based on something that's true, that you can describe in a sentence. It's very difficult to sell the idea of a novel if it's just about a bunch of people that sort of things happen to and then a few more things happen to and they get into various scrapes and then it all resolves itself. I mean, how can you possibly sell that idea to 
either a, a publisher or, or a bookseller, if you can just explain in, in one sentence that it's about an investigation into a putative virgin birth, that, that just gives them something to, you know, get their teeth into. And that's how it, it proved. And there's another there's another real life event that, that hangs over this story. And we won't talk about how it works in the story, but this is the um, the Lewisham train crash. I also used to commute on that very line. I used to live in Lewisham and used to get off at St John's all the time and also had no idea that this thing had happened. Tell me about what the Lewisham train crash was. Well, I lived in Hayes in Kent, on the, which is at the, the terminus of the Charing Cross line that goes through Lewisham. And it was only when I was researching the virgin birth story in the 50s, thinking, could I feasibly set this story in the London suburbs? It struck me as being quite a suburban tale. And so I started reading up local history and I came across this reference to the Lewisham rail crash of, of 1957. And it was such a huge um, event and such a terrible tragedy. And it could have been even more terrible because not only did two trains collide and sort of jackknife knocking down a, a pillar which was supporting a, an overpass, which then collapsed on top of the trains, but that was also carrying a railway line, which another train was coming along. And, you know, if it hadn't been for the quick thinking of that driver, that train would have then plunged on top of the other two. So it was a, a really big disaster and obviously affected lots of local people. But because it was so long ago, it, it just hadn't it hadn't been something that I'd ever become aware of until I was reading about it. But after the book came out, lots of people have approached me saying, oh, you know, my my dad was on the train, my auntie was on the train, my, my mum was supposed to be on the train, but she just missed it. And, and all these sort of people who are connected to this tragedy. And it, it just made me think that these these events have a have a really long reach. And when, it, when there's been a sort of community tragedy, people don't get over them quickly and they, they like to talk about them and they want them to be remembered. So I sort of thought I, I just wanted to honour that event somehow. And I wanted to talk about the world of you. You, evo- you really evoke the um, that world of small local newspapers, which at this time, I say small local newspapers, but would have been you know a much bigger concern than local newspapers have, have unhappily become latterly. Tell me about researching that world. Well, that was really enjoyable. I went to my local library and just read old editions of local newspapers from the 1950s and just got a, a flavour of, of what local news was like and what sort of things concerned people and you know it was just very illuminating and they, they seemed to me to be full of wonders these these old papers you know that the sort of detailed magistrates court reports would give all the sort of crimes that had gone on you know someone had broken into the British Legion and stolen some petrol coupons or someone had um, shoplifted a pair of gloves from somewhere or you know, a girl had been sent to a reform school for being unruly and um, it just, or, or, you know, someone hadn't paid their dog licence. And th- there were all these these tiny sort of parochial little crimes going on. And and then there were the things like, you know, the May Queens. There was a kerfuffle about the May Queens because they decided they were going to not let them use a particular type of fabric and that sort of thing. All, all these things that were obviously greatly interesting to people at the time and hugely newsworthy of the moment. And they just struck me as being wonderfully nostalgic and almost like they came from another century. Well, I suppose they do come from another century, but it, it felt like they were they were sort of prehistoric. And the more I read about it, the more interested I was in this world that that's still very much around us. I mean, it, when we were in lockdown, the 1950s didn't seem that far off when I'd go out in the street and, in the evening and everybody was back in their little burrows and there was no traffic on the road and all the shops were closed and it didn't really feel that 
many million miles from the 50s. And yeah, I want to talk about the evoking that world of the 1950s, because this is an era that's, you know, it's very much before the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP. And it's over a decade after the war, but this era much more evokes Brief Encounter than anything post-1960. So it seemed like a world that was in stasis that hadn't changed. Obviously, you know, like things like rationing carried on for a long time into the 50s. Um, but it still seems like that sort of post-World War II world where there's smog and gas lamps. Yeah, I think it, it did feel very much like a, an era of, of sort of repression and duty. And the characters that I'm writing about, don't they don't know that the 60s are coming. You know, they don't realise that all those things are going to be blown away within a few years. But obviously the reader knows that. So there is that sort of irony in seeing what these people are going through almost for nothing because history has something else in store and I just felt it was a it was a really interesting era you you know that people had come through all this austerity and suffering and you know grim experience of the war but they hadn't really they hadn't really grown into a new kind of way of living and I think you know men had come back from the war and hadn't many of them hadn't really settled back into married life comfortably and women hadn't comfortably got used to having them back and then the women who were sort of outnumbered men and were not going to be able to find a partner really didn't have that many options in terms of their lives as well and you know a lot of them were just stuck at home looking after elderly relatives or living lives of sort of quiet duty and frustrated potential and that was the era I kind of wanted to get across. As well as evoking that era in lots of ways the book reminded me of writers from that era as well and I've seen people talk about you know compare the book to Barbara Pym or Elizabeth Taylor or Anita Bruckner and I wonder what writers were an influence on you when you were writing it. Well Barbara Pym is certainly an influence in that I've I've read all her books and really enjoyed them and I I sort of held her up as a a model of someone who had been undiscovered for a long time and then had a sort of late flowering success. And so that was always in the back of my mind as a sort of hopeful um, talisman. But I think she is, she is much kind of funnier and lighter, really. I think Small Pleasures is a bit, is a bit darker, really, than um, vintage Barbara Pym. But I, I think we, we inhabit the same kind of suburban world of net curtains and um, tinned peaches or whatever and, you know, grim food and things like that. But I, I did do lots of reading of literature set in or written in the 50s just to get that flavour of the vocabulary and the, and the speech patterns from the time. But the um, literature of the 50s is so varied. I mean, you know, you've got Agatha Christie or Kingsley Amis, Iris Murdoch, um, Barbara Pym. There's such a range of different uh, voices. But, I, you know, I just dutifully read as much as I could and, and felt that I'd, I could get, you know, into that sort of mindset of um, slightly repressed desire and um, duty and decent behaviour and those kind of qualities that are, seem a little bit old-fashioned and strange to us now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Claire Chambers and we're talking about her novel Small Pleasures. And Claire, I want to talk about some of the characters in the book now in the second half. And so we'll start with Jean Swinney, who is our our main protagonist. Uh, One of these women that you've just described in the first part has been, you know, sort of left behind a bit surplus to requirements in a world where women outnumbered men after the war. Tell us something more about who she is. Well, she's the unlucky other sibling of a, of a more racy and successful sister who's managed to get a husband and children and flee abroad to a glamorous life in sort of Happy Valley, while Jean has been left behind to look after her mother who suffers from it's sort of undiagnosed agoraphobia, I suppose. And so Jean is the one who's saddled with care of the elderly. And she has a job, so she has something. She's not, you know, she's she's not housebound, but she has this sort of soft imprisonment in that her mother really needs her to be there all the time she's not at work. And so any any freedoms have to be um, carefully negotiated and begged for, really. So her life is not desperately rich. You know, there, there are sort of um, routines of dutifully mowing the neighbour's lawn and doing the shopping and going to work and you know, trying to cajole her mother into perhaps having some kind of social life, which she's very reluctant to do, and setting her mother's hair in curlers and listening to the radio together. So there is that slightly suffocating domesticity, which I tried to bring out. And that was, part of that was using the household hints as a sort of chorus throughout the book. Jean is the feature writer on the local paper, and one of her jobs is to choose the household hints, which are sent in by readers. And they're all kind of grim, <laughs> suggestions of how to be more thrifty and uh, how to recycle your plastic m- Macintosh into a luggage protector or a sponge bag or something or um, how to clean your carpets with sawdust and so each of these little tips becomes a slight commentary on the action that's going on. Yeah I was going to say I love how you feature them through the book and then they do start to comment on what's they're incorporated into thematically into actually what's going on in the plot which I thought was a wonderful touch. 
yeah, I enjoyed that. I, I got all those from my local parish magazine from the 1950s, and they do read like parody. They read honestly like something out of Viz, but they're, they they're absolutely <laughs> realistic and were genuinely sent in by helpful women in the 1950s to help other women, you know, to lighten their load. So Jean, as you said, she's got a job, and and actually, although it's you know on a relatively small scale as a journalist and she's you know responsible for the women's stuff in the paper she does command a, like a you know an amount of professional respect she is she's a you know a early career woman yeah she's a hard worker and she's respected by her colleagues and she's treated as one of the chaps by the men in the office so she has a certain amount of professional standing but it's not you know a, a job up in fleet street there's not much glamour associated with it she's just writing up the, the local weddings and funerals and you know recipes for national soup week or whatever it might be so it it's a a job rather than a career, I would say. And and there's no prospect of it changing. That's that's part of the, the situation that she's in, the, her predicament, until she meets the Tilburys. This is her life and this is how it's going to be. So that's how it sort of starts until until things change. Before we get on to the Tilburys, I just wanted to say something more about her mother and, well, somebody who's absent from the novel, but, you know, has a sort of huge presence in it is their absent father their late father tell us something about him yeah he men get quite a raw deal in in small pleasures really they're all all more or less judged on how they treat women and and most of them fail that test miserably and her father is is someone who who was um a businessman he had his own fruit importing business or wholesaling um, business and he'd come through the first world war and survived and then as soon as the Second World War looks imminent, you know, that, that sort of sort of tips him over the edge and he has an affair and leaves Jean's mother and the girls and sets up with somebody new. And this is all just told through Jean's experience. We, we don't ever see him through his own eyes. We only hear this through Jean relating it as a, as a sort of family disaster. And then he, so he, having left uh, Jean's mother, he's then almost immediately killed in an air raid in the war. So Jean's mother is sort of twice over abandoned. She's left and then and then she's bereaved, but she's never really had a chance to process having been left. So she's she's robbed twice over because she doesn't really get the respect that is due to a to a widow because everyone knows he's already run away. So that that's why she's she's in this sort of state of grief. She's she's almost like a sort of Miss Havisham. She's in this state of completely unprocessed grief and um, betrayal. And that's why she's she's such a difficult woman for Jean to live with. And so the the Tilburys, Gretchen and Howard, and their daughter, well, Gretchen's daughter, Margaret, Gretchen and who knows his daughter, Margaret. Tell us about them. Well, Jean goes to sort of interview Gretchen, having heard about this this woman who who claims to be a virgin mother. And so she she goes along thinking, well, I'll I'll sort of wrap this up in an afternoon. You know, it'll be quite apparent that the woman's absolutely mad. But on the contrary, she, she finds Gretchen to be absolutely charming and delightful and sincere and plausible and genuine. And she starts to become slightly involved with the family. She she meets the little girl, Margaret, and finds herself very attached to her. And, and it sort of brings up all these um, repressed feelings of motherhood in herself that have been unfulfilled. And she, she goes to interview Gretchen's husband to make sure that he's not exerting any undue pressure on Gretchen. And she becomes quite attached to him, and she, she just gets sucked into this 
this rather idyllic family life that the three of them seem to be playing out in the suburbs. So that that's how this story begins, really. We've talked about, you know, this idea of of passing the genesis. What that fundamentally would mean if it if it happened would be that, you know, the daughter would be a clone of the mother. And that's pretty much what we see in the story, that Margaret is like a spit absolute spitting image of Gretchen. Yeah, she's just like a, a little replica of Gretchen and she's still at the age where that's delightful to her. She's not trying to rebel against her mother at this point. She's only 10. And her sort of innocence and, and charm is part of the story and, and it's something that, that Jean feels very drawn to because she has had a sort of experience of her own which leads her to feel a particular attachment to a little girl of that age. So there are sort of layers of, of irony and, and disappointment that are afflicting Jean as she as she embarks on this relationship with this family. And it, it just brings all these buried feelings to the surface. Now, we're not going to go too much into, you know, what develops in terms of the plot and in all of the strands of the plot. But um, there's lots of other great characters in the book, but I particularly wanted to talk about Gretchen. It becomes apparent that if she has become pregnant it is while she was bedbound convalescing in a sort of sanatorium when she was a young woman and she's in this ward with three other girls and I wanted to talk about those other girls. Yeah I wanted to have this situation where where Gretchen was at the time of the supposed conception in an entirely segregated female arena of this clinic partly because the, the theme of confinement is quite a powerful one in the story. and mm-hmm. Almost all the characters are kind of suffering from some sort of confinement. So we, we get these prisons within prisons of this ward. Within the ward, some of the girls are bedbound, and one of them is even in an iron lung. So she's perhaps the most, the most confined of all the characters in the book. So th- there are these relationships playing out um, in this clinic between the, the four girls in this ward. Um, and that's something that Jean gradually uncovers through the diaries of the of the um, matron of the ward and through her interviews with the girls by letter or by by um, meeting them to find out what had been actually going on back in the in the 1940s when they'd all been patients in this sanatorium. And we talked at the beginning about how you know there's been a sort of ten year interregnum between novels before this one appeared and I wanted to talk about the reaction to it because it's it it seems to have become something of a success and I wanted to talk about you know what that meant for you well it's yeah it's been it's been incredibly um positive and um unsettling you know I would say because I've I've always you know it's been a core part of my personality for quite a few years now that I'm I'm an underachiever and it's something I've sort of clung to over the years and it brings with it a certain amount of latitude. People are people are very forgiving if you're if you're not terribly successful. So um, I'll be interested to see how that kind of plays out <laughs> as this book becomes is is actually doing quite well because obviously you can only you can only cash in your be nice to me. I've up till now been a failure card once. So I'll be interested to see see how that develops in the future. But, and of course, it's been long listed. It was long listed for the women's book. Yeah, I mean, that was really, really nice. You know, any of those kind of moments of recognition give strength to your writing arm and um, encouragement for the future. So that was incredibly welcome and helpful. Yeah, I'm, I'm still at the at the stage of, of excitement and gratitude where I can't quite believe I've, I've even been published again, never mind 
the book sold and reasonably successful and people seem to be liking it. I haven't even quite processed that level of success yet. I'm still slightly amazed that I actually got published again. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, I'll, I'll read from the um, opening chapter because then there's no risk of spoilers or things that are mysterious. The article that started it all was not even on the front page, but was just a filler on page five between an advertisement for the Patricia Brixey Dancing School and a report on the AGM of the Crofton North Liberals. It concerned the finding of a recent study into parthenogenesis in sea urchins, frogs and rabbits, which concluded that there was no reason it should not be possible in humans. This dusty paragraph might have been overlooked by most readers of the North Kent Echo, were it not for the melodramatic headline, Men No Longer Needed for Reproduction. The result was an unusually large postbag of mostly indignant letters, not just from men. One wounded correspondent, Mrs. Beryl Diplock of St. Paul's Cray, deplored the article's sentiments as dangerous and unchristian. More than one female reader pointed out that such a proposition was liable to give slippery men an excuse to wriggle out of their responsibilities. There was one letter, however, that stood out from all the rest. It was from a Mrs. Gretchen Tilbury of Seven Burdett Road, Sidcup, and read simply, Dear Editor, I was interested to read your article, Men No Longer Needed for Reproduction, in last week's paper. I have always believed my own daughter, now 10, to have been born without the involvement of any man. If you would like to know more information, you may write to me at the above address. The next editorial meeting, usually a dull affair involving the planning and distribution of duties for the week and a post-mortem of the errors and oversights in the previous issue, was livelier than it had been for some time. Jean Swinney, features editor, columnist, dog's body, and the only woman at the table, glanced at the letter as it was passed around. The slanted handwriting with its strange continental loops reminded her of a French teacher from school. She too had written the number seven with a line through it, which the 13-year-old Jean had thought the height of sophistication and decided to imitate. Her mother had put a stop to that. She could hardly have been more affronted if Jean had taken to writing in blood. To Mrs Swinney, all foreigners were Germans and beyond the pale. Thoughts of her mother prompted Jean to remember that she needed to pick up her shoes from the menders on the way home. It mystified her why someone who seldom left the house should need so many pairs of outdoor shoes. Also required were cigarettes, peppermint oil from Rumsey's, and kidneys and lard if she could be bothered to make a pie for dinner. Otherwise, it would just be eggs anyhow, that old standby. Does anyone want to go and interview our lady of Sidcup? asked Larry, the news editor. There was a general creaking backwards in chairs, indicative of dissent. Not really my thing, said Bill, sports and entertainment editor. Jean slowly extended her hand to take the letter. She knew it was coming her way sooner or later. So I've been talking to Claire Chambers about her novel Small Pleasures, which is just out in paperback from Weedenfeld and Nicholson. Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Oh, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 